Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace Fellowship Church. And um, I'd like to start by telling you a few things that I enjoy about this church because I just enjoyed them as I walked in today. I like the friendly people because we had armloads of stuff and people are eager to play with our kids and get doors for us and all kinds of good stuff. Um, I love the small groups. I always benefit from those when I'm not, you know, off doing the nursery or something else like that. Um, and I, I, I even like the snacks. Those are, those are pretty cool, not going to lie. But what drew me here in the first place about 10 years ago was something else. And you might say that all those things that I just said flow out of this thing. What drew me here was all the great things that our church believes as a body. Here's one of them. God is the all-powerful creator and ruler of the universe and the absolute standard for what is right and the judge of all things. And his book, the Bible, is without fail. And all we've got to do is stick to it as we just heard. Perhaps beliefs like that are what drew you in. Maybe you just came for the snacks. If so, that's cool. You're here now. Um, but my question this morning is this. Do you like God? Do you like Him? If so, I actually think you have a little bit of a problem. Here's why. Here's what I mean. When people lose their jobs, and when people get sick, and when people die, and when people lose everything to house fires, and when we look across history and we see things like the Holocaust, we, as Christians, must admit that God allowed that stuff to happen. Do you like God? Because a lot of people really don't. How about I take it a little further and get personal? Every sickness and injustice and every loss that you've experienced or will experience, God said, okay, do you still like him? Because, to be honest, when it's late at night, like it was last night, and my daughter is sick, or I, I think she was, and she won't stop crying, which she wouldn't. And I can't help her. And I can't sleep through it. I don't like God very much. I really don't. But there's a deeper question that I want to get at here. And it's this. If God is God, who am I to complain at how he does things? even in the midst of suffering that I can't explain. This tension points us straight to the book of Job because God wrote the book of Job and a lot of people don't like what happens in this book. I would go around to other churches and I'd tell people, yeah, we're doing the book of Job and they're like, really? Job is a righteous and blameless Man, Job follows God's laws and loves him to like a degree that like I would like I want to be that. I want to be that guy. But yet one day 
Job's life is laid to waste. And what's clear from the book is that not only that God allows that, but God instigates it. He makes it happen. How does Job respond, and how should we respond when the suffering of life comes at us and we don't even know what to do? We're going to consider questions like that and many more as we work through the book of Job over the next few months. And my hope is this, as I kind of whet your appetite this morning. As we read this, and as we suffer in life, and as we look back and even try to make sense of suffering that maybe we're bringing with us and nobody else knows about, as we do that, we will fear God and we will love Him either for the first time or in a deeper way than we ever thought possible. So this week, I'm going to kind of whet your appetite for the book. And I'm going to tell you some basics that will give you a bit of context as to what's going on here. And then I'm going to give you a summary of the book and some major themes to look for and then some applications that I am praying the Holy Spirit will work in you, work in all of us, either to bring you to the Lord or to bring you to a deeper satisfaction in Him. So let me give you some basics first. That's point one on your outline. First off, who wrote the book of Job? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know for sure. We have some guesses. Some say it was the first book of the Bible ever written, thousands of years B.C., Moses. Perhaps that's what probably a lot of you were raised to believe. Others say maybe it was written during or after Israel's exile to Babylon, which is about 500 B.C., in then other guesses are somewhere in between those two things. We know that it wasn't written any later than the exile because the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel actually refers to Job by name in his writings during the end of the exile. So it happened at least then. So, though we can't be sure of those details, as you read the book, and I would encourage you to just dig into it because there's a lot there, you'll notice the person who wrote the book of the Bible has a deep understanding and fear of God, and he also has a deep desire to understand suffering. So the themes running through Job are consistent with all the Bible. Exactly how consistent? Well, as you read through, you'll see verses that look real similar to the Psalms. You'll even see some verses that will look really familiar if you were with us during our study of Ecclesiastes last year. But here's the difference. Where Ecclesiastes is the reflections of a man, King Solomon, looking back on a long life of struggling to understand God, Job is a raw, live account of a man right in the middle of the struggle. He's trying to make sense of it. And so we can read along, and we can make sense of it too. So as you read through the book, you might notice that it actually resembles a play. It has a dramatic beginning. People take their turn giving really long monologues. I mean really long, like chapters long. And it's written from an observer's perspective. So it's like a narrator that moves from scene to scene, letting us, the audience, see the drama from every possible angle. What happens in the book? Well, that's your second point. Summary and key themes. I'm going to start with the summary. 
The book begins with the main character, Job, being described as someone who has lived wisely and he's been incredibly blessed. He has a great fortune, a wife, ten children. He's pretty much the man. You ever met somebody like that? Like, they're not only rich, they're like awesome. <laughs> you, can't, you can't even hate this guy. You can't. What if that person lost everything and they didn't deserve to? That's what happened to Job. And it happened all in one afternoon. Two acts of terrorism, two natural disasters. Take all of his possessions, all ten of his children die. If this happened to your friend, would you want justice? I would. What if I told you God did that to Job? God walked Job right into it. And he actually did it because he thought Job was worthy to suffer. He was doing him a favor. Do you still like God? It's right in chapter 1. God authorizes Satan to put Job to a test of suffering to see if Job will still worship God if he loses everything. And guess what? Satan goes off, all the terrible things happen, and at the end of the worst day of his life, up to this point, Job worships God. So, Job won, Satan nothing, right? But then it gets worse. Satan ups the stakes because God allows him to give Job a disease that almost kills him. It gets so bad that Job's wife sees him, probably considers all the stuff that she's lost as his wife, and she tells Job to curse God and die. And I don't think she's being malicious. I think she wants to see the suffering end. But Job does not curse God Job has won but he does not look like a winner then it gets worse at the end of all this drama four of Job's friends come to help him and three of them do that by arguing that Job got what was coming to him man these guys you ever met people like that they don't listen They have zero compassion. They want to get into a theological debate and you're just a mess. They think that if you just do the right thing, life will be awesome. You ever met people like that? And they just keep talking. That's the worst part, I think. Their bile, I'll call it that, because it actually, you know what's funny? Is it sounds kind of good, a lot of what they say. There's a lot of what they say that's like, they're like kind of quoting scripture, and it's kind of true, but it's just off enough to drive you nuts. And this goes on for like 20 chapters, and Job gradually defends himself more and more and more, eventually demanding for God to come up and come out and vindicate him. Then the fourth friend who has just been kind of simmering quietly the whole time. I guess he's an introvert or something. (laughs) He boils over. His name is Elihu. And though he's pretty harsh, he actually says the bitter truth to Job. He says, Job, 
and I'm paraphrasing here, God alone is just, and you should repent and accept what He's given you. Finally, then, God shows up and cleans house. Job is silenced, and though God graciously doesn't even charge Job with any sin, Job repents. Job, God then calls Job to actually pray for his three friends who have been proven wrong, and then God restores and multiplies everything that Job has. Wow. Now, there are a ton of fantastic, hard themes in this book, so I've cut it down to three. There's probably a lot more in here. I'm just going to hit what I think are the main three. So, we've talked summary. Let's talk key themes. Theme number one, God is all-powerful. Now, we're going to see this primarily at the beginning and the end of the book when God is more of an on-stage character. In the beginning of the book, God is shown to have total power over Satan because that's how it works. Nothing happens without God's approval. Like I said in the opening, God and Satan are not locked in a cosmic duel. You're going to meet Christians that actually believe that. You're going to meet people who think there's like kind of this back and forth war. That's not how it works. God's always been the man. Yet, in spite of that power, Job's three friends treat God like some sort of like an equation or something. Like they can figure him out. Like if I do this, God will do this. Like he works for me. They treat God like an equation and even Job starts to complain. But then we'll also see God's power at the end of the book when God appears and humbles Job and his friends, reminding Job that he, that God alone, is without beginning and without end and he is the standard of justice. And I mean, just think, just look, just think about Job for a minute and think about God. Just put them next to each other. Okay, even though Job's seeking to follow God's laws, he's doing pretty good. What is, what is Job compared to God? What are Job's three friends in compared to God? Nothing. It's a tie. Everybody loses except for God. Okay, theme number two. Sin is not always connected to suffering. I think this is probably going to be the one that gets the most time in the book. And um, I'm not going to say a ton here, but Job's friends, like I said, they continue to insist throughout the book that Job must have some hidden sin, some unconfessed sin, something's back there that caused this terrible stuff to happen to him. And we know as kind of the all-knowing audience because of the narrator that that's not the case. See, they th- here's the source. They think they're honoring God. Like they, they actually think they're being righteous. But like I said earlier, they're treating him like an equation. Like they can explain all of life's outcomes. Like God works for them. And you know, what's, you know what's funny? is like when they first show up to meet with Job, they actually do really well. You know why? They don't say anything. 
They just sit there with him for a week. Total silence. That's the best they did. They ruined things by talking. I can relate to that. Why didn't God level these guys instead of Job? That's what I don't get. Here's the thing. That's actually the point. God, when he shows up, proves Job's friends wrong by not giving them what they deserve. That's a real lack of justice because Job's friends have misrepresented God completely and Job has shown pride. But God does not destroy any of them, though he has every right to, especially the friends. And not only does he spare them, he asks Job to pray for them. What I'm getting at is that's one of countless biblical examples of God being unjust. He's merciful. Theme number three is what I would call the main point. God alone is good and wise and worthy of our fear. So he's not just all powerful, but he's good and wise. I'm going to quote what I, what I think is the main point. It's in Job chapter 28. In the middle of one of Job's rants, he says this. It's chapter 28, verse 23, verses 22 through 28. God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, and apportion the waters by measure when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Did you catch a repeated word? Kept doing this. He, he, it's all about God. Job says this, to his three horrible friends. I think this is pretty noteworthy because here's where you actually see God's wisdom really rubbing off on Job. Instead of making their foolishness the main point of of his argument, Job makes God the main point. Just points right to God. That's where wisdom is. And Job's already been practicing this earlier. I mean, the very afternoon, he lost his possessions and all ten of his children. What did he do? He fell to the ground and worshipped. And here's what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, you can't take it with you. Now, both this and the verses I shared from 28, they are real similar to what King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. Life is hard, but what's what's the hope? Job, cling to God. That's the hope. Job is becoming wise, just like King Solomon, right before our eyes, and it's happening, how? Through suffering. God saw that. God knew that, and he gave Job that opportunity. It was a gift. Suffering was a gift. Do you see the goodness of God? He wants Job to depend fully on him. 
Do you like God a little more now? So what do we do in response to that power and that goodness? That's our last section. You'll notice that we have quite a bit of time yet because I love applications. Um, I've got, um, there's one inward application and then two that are just aimed at how you interact with other folks. Here's an inward application. Give God the glory in the midst of your suffering. First, I'll remind us why we should do that and then how we can do that. Why should we give God glory when we suffer? Well, I mean, the first reason, God assigns suffering, suffering in various measures. We can't control that. And the second reason, as I just said, suffering can help us become less dependent on ourselves and more dependent on God, and that's a great place to be. Just like Job, we can remember that when we die, we take nothing with us. Make it as we leave. God is all we have, and he's good. So how might giving God the glory play out? Here's an everyday example. Think about when you're up at night worrying, or whenever is your time of day to worry. Mine's night. It's dark. <laughs> it's cold. Think about those, especially during times of like suffering. Not just one night, but just a string of nights. You ever have those? Your suffering just kind of owns you. What do you do with that? When you can actually cry out to God, when you can kind of actually hand that stuff over, talk to God, give it over, remember what's good and true, when you start thanking Him for who He is and what He's doing instead of what you think or what you might hope He's doing, here's what you're doing. You're acknowledging and demonstrating that God is more powerful and more good than your plans and your suffering. And all you're doing is just giving it over to Him. You're inclining yourself towards Him instead of away as you struggle. And when that happens, you can actually thrive in the midst of suffering by not only having your eyes fixed on God, but then that gives you the right vision to serve other people. Because you know what? They're probably suffering too. So here's the first outward application. Gladly mourn with people who are suffering. Gladly mourn. As we get more and more technologically advanced, this will become harder and harder. Consider Job's situation when his three friends come to visit. They actually started out well. They came and sat in silence for a week. And that sounds extreme, doesn't it? Just spending a week not saying anything, just sitting there with them. But it's actually even more striking when you consider the context. At the time of their arrival, Job was sitting in a heap of ash. Might not know what that means. What that means is he was outside the city where they burned trash. That's what they mean by a heap of ash. Job was in a dump, actually. And his wife is not mentioned at this point. 
So she very well may have left him. I can't assume that, but it's possible, especially after the whole curse God and die thing. So either way, he's sitting alone in a burned trash heap. And to be honest, that's probably what he felt like. And his friends joined him. They sat right there in the mess with him. When people suffer, they feel abandoned and alone. Like when you worry, it's all about you. and You, you forget the community that you have and the Holy Spirit working in you. So one of the most powerful things you can do for other people when they're suffering is to just go be with them and endure what they are enduring. One-on-one time, people time. That is totally inefficient, isn't it? And that's why it stands out so much to people. Yeah, I'll spend an afternoon with you, a whole afternoon. I'll spend a whole day with you. I'll drive down to your house and live with you for a week while you work through this. story of this in my life um a number of months ago my my grandmother died and uh she was in her 90s so we all saw it coming and um, as she got older she was more and more just in pain and struggling and i could tell she just you know was looking forward to that day but still the day is hard i remember getting the call and being actually in a position to go down there and be with her with the family that day And she died. And um, I drove down there, and I've got all these, like, godly things that I'm going to say. You know, I'm thinking through, like, how can I engage my uncle? You know, I think he's a believer, and what can I do there? And, oh, what can I say to my dad, and what can I say to my mom? And I get down there, and and I see her, and I hadn't seen her for a couple of months. And she's sitting there. She's in a coma at this point. She's not responsive. I just start crying. That's all I got. And then... Family comes in and they start crying. Everybody's crying. That was pretty much the afternoon. Crying and they brought in like a snack tray. So we ate snacks. But then we got right back to crying. And I, I, I think about that. Then they actually wheel my grandfather in. He's also in his 90s. Just mentally he's starting to lose it too. They wheel him in. They've been married for like, I've lost count, like 70 years. I don't even know at this point. They wheel him in, and he's like holding their hand, and they're like, you know, he's like praying for her. And, you know, he's, you can tell he knows what's going on, and he's saying goodbye to her. And he goes to pull his hand away, and she doesn't let go. And everybody's just a mess at this point. And everybody's crying. And the, the caretaker that comes in with my grandpa, she's crying because she loves my grandpa. I had all these cool, godly pieces of advice ready, but all I got was tears, and that's plenty. That's the closest I remember feeling to my parents, ever. Just crying on my dad's shoulder, him crying on my mom's shoulder. That's plenty. Just go be with people. So what about when the time comes to speak? Well, at this point, your similarities to Job's friends should probably stop. The word that comes to mind is graciousness. While their suffering may be a result of sin, there are likely layers to the story that you do not know. There's probably layers of the story that they don't even know. 
It's raw. Proverbs calls a person heart calls a person's heart a well of deep water and reminds us that it takes a person of understanding to draw out that water. It's a big, complicated process. It's not just crying. Then it's saying the right words, asking the right questions. So that third that second application then, we've got mourn with people who are suffering. But then we're transitioning to be gracious to people who are suffering. Their suffering might be a result of their sin, but there's layers of the story that you don't know. So how do you go about relating to them? Well, I'm going to first tell you how we don't do this, and then I'm going to talk about how the gospel frees us to be gracious. Just last evening, I love when children give me free sermon illustrations. Just last evening, my two-year-old daughter, Rosie, was being pretty fussy after her nap. The late afternoons are usually a problem for her. Just hard. I'm sitting out, you know, I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm trying to get the house, like, nicer than when Becky left. Like, I want to, like, push the thing forward. And uh, so I'm trying to be a good dad while, while Becky and, and our little uh, six-month-old Deborah are at the ladies' retreat. So I actually go so far as to include broccoli in the meal. She actually likes broccoli. It's a praise. And um, as I'm giving it to her, I see that it's too big for her, so I break it into pieces. She immediately starts crying. Why did she do that? Was a question that I probably should have asked. But I didn't do that. Instead, I just kind of simmered like, Seriously, you're crying over broccoli? You like broccoli. Eat the broccoli. (laughs) Then I remembered that for some reason when I break food, Rosie assumes that I've killed it. (laughs) But the point is this. She's suffering. That sounds crazy. But her world is upside down. I don't know why. Something's going wrong. Tears. And I'm not helping her. That's what's clear. That's what's going on. I'm not helping her. I'm simmering. I was a miserable comforter. Later, I realize why she is so fussy. It wasn't the broccoli. It wasn't that it's 4 p.m. Guess why? Were you paying attention? She misses her mom. And she misses her sister. That's it. She missed him. I figured that out later. Now, what was going on in my heart there? What was happening? Well, assumptions, you know, like she's always like this at this time. It's probably that. Or pride, you know, like I'm trying to be a good dad, trying to give you the stuff you like, cut me some slack. And here's the thing. I'm glaring throughout all this, and I'm just thinking, would you be content? Just think about that for a minute. Leading by example. (laughs) How about you, parents? How are you doing there? Let's expand it outward a little bit. What about driving in traffic? Here's another one where you tend to be gracious to people, right? (laughs) Stuck behind a student driver, anybody, (laughs) when you're late? (laughs) Or the person that just slows down for every possible right turn, like they're new in town? Or when you get angry at the person 
who's like was in an accident and they're just they make you really late and everybody just one by one the cars just glare at that guy like while he's going by like man this better be good <laughs> um students what about other students in your fellowship you ever have somebody like this in your fellowship we're just always with the dramatic prayer requests every week dramatic 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 and you're just like get over it See, we can be so gracious toward our own suffering and so gracious that we extend no grace to other people, just blinders on. Here's what I'm getting at. I think that we think that we're like Job, suffering valiantly. But in reality, I think we're a lot more like his friends. Instead of caring for people, we make assumptions or we just kind of blow off their suffering. Praise God that he is not like us. That's what makes the gospel so hopeful in the midst of suffering, whether it's our suffering or anyone else's suffering. It's because God is worthy of our fear, yet he took the anger of Job and his friends. You'll see that right in the text. He decides to make no charge against them, though he could have, he should have, he had every right to. So in a way, he kind of absorbed it, kind of took it on himself. Now the fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. God humbled himself and sends Jesus to die, a death of painful separation, and might I add, real suffering, separated from God so that we, as sinful as we are, as miserable of a comforter as we can be, we would actually be given so much more than what Job received at the end of his story. He gets stuff back. If you have Jesus, you have a lot more than stuff. Why would an all-powerful God do that? Because he's good. So we fall short in caring to suffering people, but God is perfect. So I think we can work with this. How can we grow here? What steps can we take? Let's start small. Let's give you one example of how we can talk to people who are suffering. And since I'm not good at this, I'm going to quote somebody else. Pastor John Piper says this. And this language, by the way, assumes that the suffering person is a Christian So he says this, we should be able to say to people, I'm not looking for a specific sin in your life that God is punishing you for or chastising you for. God might be permitting this calamity to come into your life to refine your very beautiful faith. Did you hear that? Your faith is like gold, but it does have straw in it. And God loves you so much that right now he's going to burn out a little more straw. Any suffering person I've ever talked to bears witness to the fact that they have seen more of God and have come to know and trust God more deeply 
than if their suffering hasn't come. Suffering is a gift. So do you see what we're doing in a nutshell? We're not aiming for the sin. We're helping them dress the wound. Friends, to suffer is a fantastic opportunity. It is in disguise. When we fear and praise God in the midst of our suffering, we glorify Him and we can trust Him more deeply. And when we suffer with other people, we can help them do the same thing. I'm excited to study this book with you. My prayer is that we will walk together through this book over the next five months and we will see God's power and goodness in a way that is so clear that we will fear him and see him as beautiful and that will change the way we live and especially how we suffer. In other words, we will fear God and suffer wisely. Let me pray for us.